Welcome to this first episode in our FDI Friday podcast series, a new series from Herbert Smith Freehill's Foreign Investment Regulation Experts, in which we'll be sharing our insights into FDI regimes around the globe and focusing on practical guidance for investors navigating these often very non-transparent regimes. I'm Ruth Allen, a professional support lawyer in our competition regulation and trade practice in London, and I'm joined today by Veronica Roberts, UK Regional Head of our Competition and Regulatory Practice, who also heads up our global FDI group, and Gavin Davies, our Global Head of M&A. Now we're kicking off this series by focusing on the still relatively new UK National Security and Investment Regime, which has been enforced since 4th of January 2022. So Veronica, can you start us off by giving a brief description of how the NSI regime works, drawing out the key features that investors need to be aware of? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ruth. So, first of all, we've got the mandatory notification part of the regime. And this means that if you acquire or increase an existing shareholding or voting rights, such that the acquirer, which can be a non-UK or a UK acquirer, passes through the 25%, 50% or 75% thresholds in a company in the UK active in one of 17 sensitive sectors, then you have to make a mandatory filing. Now, these sectors include, as you would imagine, military, defence, dual-use type products. But the national security concept is also now much broader and sensitive sectors will also include things like synthetic biology and artificial intelligence. And where this mandatory notification obligation is triggered, the transaction cannot be completed prior to clearance. And it's worth noting at this stage that intra-group reorganisations are also covered if the company is, is, is active in one of those 17 sensitive sectors. And then separately, the government has a much broader call-in power to review non-notified transactions if it believes that national security concerns may arise and that at least material influence is being acquired. And that's in any sector of the economy. And the Secretary of State can exercise that call-in power up to six months after they become aware of the transaction, provided it's within five years of completion. Now, this call-in power can apply to any qualifying deal that's been completed on or after the 12th of November 2020. So it does have retroactive application. And we've seen this in practice in a couple of high-profile deals where a divestment order has been made a considerable time after completion. So Nexperia, Newport Wafer, Fab and Letter One Up are both deals that completed in 2021 were subsequently called in for review and were ordered to divest, although applications for judicial review are ongoing in both cases. And again, just worth pointing out quickly at this stage that there is an extraterritorial part to the regime. The government can call in a transaction where there's a change of control over a company that is selling goods or services into the UK, where there could be a national security concern as a result of that change of control. So really quite a broad call-in power. So given this risk of call-in, parties can also choose to submit a voluntary notification. And we're seeing this become a lot more common. The ICU has set up a transactions intelligence team and is really showing an appetite for asking questions about non-notified transactions and sometimes calling them in. Now, in terms of impact on deal timing, 
The review of straightforward transactions raising no issues should usually be completed within 30 working days. But where a more in-depth investigation is needed, the review process can take up to 105 working days, so basically nearly six months, or even longer if the parties end up consenting to an extension, which you would do if the alternative was a prohibition decision at that late, late stage in the process. To date, we've seen a limited possibility for informal guidance in advance of making a notification or pre-notification discussions like we see in merger control. But we have seen indications recently from the government that they want to start providing more transparency on that front. And then finally, I've referred to the ISU, that's the Investment Security Unit, and they carry out the review with the Secretary of State acting as the final decision maker. And following the reshuffling of government departments, this is now Oliver Dowden within the Cabinet Office. Thanks, Veronica. Now, in terms of how this new regime is playing out in practice, I think it's fair to say that the UK regime is already proving to be one of the most active in the world. Um, we had an annual report uh, published in July, um, which showed that the ISU received 866 notifications in just the 12-month period to 31st of March this year. Now, if you compare that to other regimes around the world, that's almost double the number of filings made to CFIUS in the US, for example, and almost three times as many filings as received by the FDI authorities in France and Germany. And although only around 6% of those notifications were actually called in for in-depth investigation. We have already seen 17 cases where remedies have been imposed under the NSI regime, and that includes five cases where transactions have been prohibited or required to be unwound, as you mentioned earlier, Veronica, with those two divestment cases. So the NSI regime is clearly a regime with teeth, um, but very little information is made public about individual cases. And that means that the main source of practical insights into how the regime is playing out in practice actually comes from dealing with the ISU on a regular basis. And with that in mind, Veronica, drawing on your experience of advising clients and dealing with the ISU, what trends are you seeing emerging in terms of the type of deals being reviewed under the NSI regime? So we've advised on four of the 12 conditional clearance decisions to date as well as numerous other transactions which have ultimately been cleared unconditionally. And that's given us a really good insight into how the ISU is operating in practice. In terms of key sectors of interest, the focus to date has been mainly on dual-use goods and technology and security of critical national infrastructure, as well as advanced materials. In terms of the use of the call-in power, it's worth highlighting that the level of shareholding required for the ISU to find that an investor is acquiring material influence, the trigger threshold, can be really quite low. And in one case that Gavin and I were both involved in, material influence was deemed to exist where there was an acquisition of a 12% shareholding plus a board seat. Thanks. And, and what about the nationality of the investor? To what extent is that a relevant consideration? Is it the case that this is just all about investment from China? So, unlike some other FDI regimes around the world, the NSI regime doesn't differentiate on the basis of nationality of the investor. So, exactly the same notification thresholds apply no matter what the country of origin. In fact, the same rules even apply to UK investors as well as non-UK investors. This is very unusual. The government's acknowledged that UK investors will be less likely to give rise to national security concerns in practice 
But we have already seen one transaction involving a UK acquirer where conditions were imposed. That's Epiris Sapura. And in the 12-month period to the 31st of March earlier this year, almost a third of call-in notices were issued in relation to UK acquirers. But of course, an acquirer's ties to a state or organisation considered to be hostile to the UK will be taken into account when assessing potential risks to national security. And in practice, like in many other FDI regimes, there does remain a particular focus on Chinese investment. And Ruth, this comes out very clearly from the recent annual report, which says that investment associated with China accounted for 42% of call-in notices, even though they represented only 4% of notifications, and more than half of the final orders, including all but one of the prohibition or divestment decisions. But having said that, there are also a number of examples of Chinese investment which have been conditionally cleared. Four of the 12 conditional clearance decisions to date have involved Chinese investment and two of those we were involved in. And overall, acquisitions associated with China also received the highest number of unconditional clearances, 40% of overall unconditional clearances in the 12-month period covered by the recent annual report. So I think that's all telling us that, yes, of course, Chinese investment is under scrutiny, but clearance, even unconditional, is possible. And on the flip side, I should say that the fact that an investor is from the UK or from a friendly foreign country won't necessarily mean that you can avoid an investigation. In the 12-month period to the end of March, 20% of call-in notices were issued to investors associated with the US, 15% to investors associated with Canada, and 8% to investors associated with France. Thanks, Veronica. Some really interesting statistics there. Um, Turning to remedies, I already mentioned that very limited information is made publicly available. Um, So drawing on your experiences with the ISU, what sort of remedies are you seeing in practice and how does the process actually work in terms of negotiating with the ISU on remedies? You're, You're right, Ruth. If remedies are imposed, you only see a very high level summary of the ISU's decision on their website without any of the reasoning. It simply describes the transaction in a couple of lines, states that national security concerns were identified, and at least in most cases only sets out a very limited description of the remedies imposed to address the concerns. But combining that publicly available information with our experience of advising on cases where remedies have been imposed, we can definitely see some trends starting to emerge. So typical remedies we're seeing in practice include government oversight, of relevant company policies and contracts on an ongoing basis, an agreement that there will be prior notification of further transactions, even where they wouldn't usually need to be notified under this regime, a whitelist, blacklist approach to the provision of information to investors so they can't see national security sensitive information. We've seen controls of visitors, staff and site security, sometimes imposing restrictions on the nationality of people who have access to sensitive infrastructure. Occasionally, we've seen a requirement for an HMG board observer, and we've also seen conditions around strategic capabilities. As to how this remedies process actually works in practice, officially, remedies are imposed and there's limited scope for negotiation. 
But in our experience, the way this plays out can vary quite a bit in practice. In some cases we've advised on, it's been very much a sort of take it or leave it approach, whereas in others, the ICU has been a lot more open to discussions aimed at ensuring that remedies are workable in practice for the UK company. Where the ICU hasn't engaged in discussions about remedies, sometimes that can lead to practical difficulties in terms of implementation. Thanks, Veronica. Moving on to the impact of all of this on transactions in practice, can you perhaps comment on the impact you're seeing on deal timetables? And I think maybe bringing in Gavin as well, how this is being integrated into deal practice sort of more generally. Yeah, sure. I'll I'll start off and, and then Gavin will be able to build on this with practical points. But from a timing perspective, I think the good news at the outset is that notifications are usually accepted promptly. The notification is very short when you compare it to merger control filings in particular, and we're not seeing lengthy pre-notification discussions like we do see in many merger control regimes. And unproblematic transactions are cleared by the end of the first 30 working day period. So the annual report tells us that 93% of cases are cleared in that time frame. However, where potential national security concerns are identified, The hub-and-spoke model, where the ICU reaches out to relevant government departments for input, can sometimes result in delays. So we've had cases where an information request has been issued close to the end of that 30 working day period. So the government's ended up calling in a deal, but the transaction has then been cleared really quite quickly during that call-in review period. And then a final point, really, is it's worth reminding ourselves that the government can use stop-the-clock provisions during the call-in period. So the review clock will be stopped at any party when it has to respond to a request for information. And you don't always know when a request for information has been sent to another party, so it's really important to try to keep on top of the timetable at that stage. And Gavin, you'll have a number of practical points to build on on that. Yes, thanks, Veronica, and thanks, Ruth. I think perhaps the first thing I'd say from an M&A practitioner's point of view is this regime um, fits very uh, clearly into a pre-existing approach that had been taken on private M&A deals for regulatory conditions, particularly merger control, but other ones, including uh, the EU foreign subsidies regime that came in in July and other international FDI regimes. And that's really all about the um, the parties to the deal screening up front what regulatory filings may be necessary or desirable, working out what substantive issues there are around that and then planning for them. Um, So the process in private M&A is for the buyer to identify if the target is within one of the 17 sectors and the thresholds that would require a mandatory filing. And and if not, examine the risk of the ISU deploying the call-in power. As Veronica explained, um, the ISU has a transactions intelligence team. They're scanning or you know, material influence in any sector that's of interest to them. So do you go with a voluntary notification? When, as a 
buyer and an investor, you're making that decision. Um, you're also judging the risk around call-in power of, of, of what a subsequent call-in and need to unwind the transaction would, would, would do commercially. You're thinking about what other interactions you have had, perhaps historically, with the ISU and what sort of uh, how they might regard you. You'd also think about what the rest of the regulatory, whether FDI, merge control or other, um, uh, picture for the whole deal is. And I think particularly you'll sort of think about an integrated regulatory strategy, mindful that if you're approaching one regulator, um, that may, may give you more reason to want to put something in front of the ISU. So that's all work that's done up front ahead of a deal. In then negotiating that into deal documents, um, you work out as, as, as the buyer, as the investor, what's needed. You know, you discuss with a seller and you build in a condition. Of course, sellers prefer um, or tend to say they only insist on mandatory regulatory conditions. But I think the voluntary Filing in some regards is accepted as a sort of sensible thing to do. Um, the conditions written in there, it's often likely to form one of a number of other conditions, whether international, FDI or merge control. I think it's important to pick up, Veronica, on what you said about the speed at which the uncomplicated deals can get through. So that, that 93% statistics you, you mentioned, they can move quickly because there's no lengthy pre-notification period. Um, their filings are accepted promptly and, and you'd expect to get through in the first 30 working days. So often that means that this will be one of the earlier regulatory clearances to get through and it's perhaps a more unusual situation where it's the only condition or the last or last condition to be to be satisfied as they all in the uncomplicated deals um generally there's not a discussion of uh remedies um in the same to the same extent as there might be around merge control issues and that's not because there's any fewer filings under NSNI than perhaps under merger control, but it's possibly due to say that it's clearer where there is likely to be um, a security concern, a security can you know issue. It tends to be more binary, whereas in the merge control world, there's probably a little bit more flex around substantive issues and to see what points a regulator is going to be taking. So I think, um, Veronica Ruth, I think that's one reason why on the private M&A deals, you don't find extensive discussion other than a really smaller subset about what those remedies might be. Perhaps the last thing to say on the private M&A bit is how you deal with auctions. A lot of uh, private M&A is conducted with auctions, perhaps a little bit less so than at the moment. That's the market norm. And I think on the bidder side, you are both asking, uh, you're doing your own work. On the, on the seller side, you're asking the bidder to give its own assessment of what it need, needs. But also on the seller side, you're doing your own sort of screening as to where you think the substantive issues might be, and you're interrogating um, the um, 
bidder, particularly is that if they're going for the voluntary, you particularly ask them sensible questions like what their history has been, if any, with the ISU and NSNI or indeed on any other um, regulatory uh, FDI process. Thanks, Gavin. And what about public M&A? Are public takeovers any different? Any points you'd bring out there? Yes, Ruth. I think there, there there's some similarities and there are some differences. On the similarities, I think the process is exactly the same. It's the bidder um, working through that analysis itself. Um, the same point on no resoundings as we've heard earlier from Veronica with the ISU and indeed um, in any event you're in a, a takeover code world where confidentiality and keeping the deal really tight is important. Um, I think then it's a discussion with you know the target as to where your assessment lies and whether a condition is put in or not. I think the form of condition that's used in takeover deal document is settled. Um, there's actually a City of London uh, Law Society form of condition that tends to be used as a standard. I think there have been discussions uh, with the uh, UK takeover panel about how all this operates. I think the point that's different and it's just worth reminding people of is when you do a public takeover deal, you're in a very regimented both timetable and process, which means that this NSNI condition gets treated like other regulatory conditions. There might be a need to seek an extension to the panel uh, code timetable. Um, if you find yourself in a situation where you need to actually invoke the condition, it's not in as straightforward as a private deal. Um, as we know under the UK Takeover Code, um, it's got to be a condition that's of material significance and it's got to have uh, go through a process with a panel. So you need to sort of be very thoughtful uh, about that. Um, in practical experience, we've seen a number of deals now where the condition has been included and it has been the last of the condition to be satisfied. But we've not seen any public deals where there'd be any greater difficulty than that. I think the last thing to say, perhaps on takeovers, is the strategy point and whether there is any other sort of preliminary thinking or work that a bidder might do. Um, it's an old topic in itself, but um, many listeners may be familiar with the takeover code post-offer undertaking regime. Um, and also uh, there's a, a different approach where uh, undertakings can be offered outside of the NSNI regime by a bidder directly to the UK government. Um, there are um, issues and complexities with either, um, but those are other routes that are sort of potentially available to a bidder that sees issues and wants to get ahead of them. Um, we all asked ourselves, particularly on public M&A, whether there would be a measure of use of this regime by perhaps the political classes, because often public M&A has 
some element of political interest to it. I think what we've um, w- what we would say is actually we haven't seen the, the regime being used or, or politicians particularly seeking to invoke the regime around sort of wider political interest on, on, on takeover deals. Um, Veronica, you mentioned the Nexperian Newport Wave for Fab. Um, transaction, which was not a public deal, which I think is probably the most political situation that we've seen um, in, in, the, in the last number of months. Thanks, Gavin. Some really interesting insights there. Um, just before we move on, are there any other types of deals that we should be sort of thinking about? Yes, perhaps just a note on, on stake building. That's where um, uh, an investor buys shares in a publicly listed company. Um, Of course, um, where an investor does that to scale, it should have on its radar anyway, thinking about a point at which it gets a or is deemed to have a material influence that might interest the merger control authorities. We've seen that be as low as 17 percent. It should also be asking itself whether under the NSNI call in power, there might be some interest um, shown by the, the ISU as to whether any material influence, um, which, as you mentioned earlier, could be as low as 12 percent is, is there. We've seen a couple of call in cases that were actually cleared there, um, one around the Royal Mail and one around BT. So it's something to keep on the list of things to think about. Uh, when doing stake building in companies that, um, you know, are, are ones that might be on the radar for the ISU transaction intelligence team. And then just to pick up on that point, Gavin, um, more generally, now that the ISU has this transactions intelligence team, in our experience, it is becoming more common that they start asking questions about non-notified transactions. And then you're in a position where they'll probably decide not to start an investigation, but that might take a little bit of time just to tease that out from them. And you might want to cater in the SPA for these circumstances and start considering including an option to delay completion until the ISU indicates whether or not it will start an investigation. And we were recently told that the ISU plans to issue a no further questions statement where it has asked questions about an unnotified transaction but doesn't plan to open an investigation. And that's similar to what we see from the CMA in the merger control context. And, of course, we have developed conditionality in SPA to deal with that as well. And if the trend towards asking questions about non-notified transactions and indeed calling in non-notified transactions continues to grow, parties may be more inclined to lodge voluntary filings, even where there's no obvious national security risk. And that goes back to your point, Gavin, doesn't it, about whether there are any other filings being made, what the gap is between signing and completion. Thanks, both. Um, And just finally, um, many listeners may well be aware that there's an ongoing parliamentary inquiry into information sharing by the ISU. Um, And the whole process is often described at the moment as being something of a black box. Has that also been your experience in practice? So I think in some cases, Ruth, it has been a a bit of a black box. But but in the cases that we've advised on that have gone through to the later stages, so it's a call in, there is some sort of national security concern. 
overall, we have got much better engagement from the ISU and the parliamentary inquiry really focused on transparency. We've submitted evidence on that point based on our experience. And I went along and gave oral evidence on this. And it's very clear that there is a real desire to address these transparency concerns. Um, Oliver Dowden has publicly acknowledged that the regime needs to be more open and transparent. We've seen the memorandum of understanding with Bayes this year and updated market guidance. So I think we're going to see things on this front improve. That's great to hear. Thanks, Veronica. Um, good to end on a, on a positive note there. Um, thanks also to you, Gavin. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Um, so thanks for what's been a really interesting discussion to kick off the FDI Friday series. And thank you to our listeners as well. Um, we would welcome any feedback you may have on this episode or any suggestions for areas to cover in future episodes of FDI Friday. Um, but the next two FDI Friday podcasts are already available on our website, um, focusing on the application of the NSI regime to M&A in the tech and energy sectors in particular. And we look forward to bringing you new episodes every Friday.